This episode of Diffusion Science Radio is supported by you, the listener. When you visit audibletrial.com science to try Audible free for 30 days, go to www.audibletrial.com science to receive your free audiobook today. Or make a donation directly on www.diffusionradio.com. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, the end of the world. And the mood dress. But first up, here's the news. Nicaragua has been hit. On Sunday, September 7th, just after midnight people heard a loud explosion outside the capital, Managua, and later found an impact crater near the military air force base and international airport. The hole is 5 metres deep and 12 metres across. Nicaraguan astronomers reported that it was a meteorite that had cleaved off from the 2014 RC asteroid that was known to be flying safely past Earth on the weekend. However, NASA astronomers say that explanation doesn't fit the facts of how the asteroid moves or how meteorites behave. Why was there no streak of light? Only state journalists have been allowed near the crater. Asteroid 2014RC was discovered on the 31st of August 2014. It's 12 metres across, the size of a small bus, about half the size of the meteorite that hit Chelyabinsk in February 2013. It passed the Earth on Sunday, September 7th, over New Zealand, missing us by 34,000 kilometres. Astronomers around the world came out to observe this rare event. Bill Cook, head of the Meteoroid Environment Office at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Centre in Huntsville, Alabama, said that something that made a crater this big should have produced an incredibly bright fireball in the night sky, brighter than the full moon. Cook recalled that many people saw the fireball of the last meteorite strike in Nicaragua in 2007, even though it was in the daytime. He also said there should be blackened remnants of the meteorite in and around the crater. But nothing like that is shown in photos or reports. So NASA are very sceptical that the explosion and crater were caused by a meteorite. And NASA astronomers insist that if it was a meteorite, it had nothing to do with asteroid 2014RC. The explosion occurred 13 hours before the asteroid moved nearest the Earth. Different timing, different directions, so the events are unrelated. As yet, no eyewitness accounts or imagery have come to light of the fireball flash or the trail of debris that's usually associated with a media big enough to produce this sort of crater. The explosion was near an Air Force base. There are no eyewitness reports or videos of a fireball or a trail of debris only government media are allowed near, and there's no sign of the meteorite's remains in the crater. 
There's no chance it's connected to asteroid 2014RC and all the astronomers around the world who were keeping a special watch out that night failed to see anything. The Nicaraguan government assures everybody it was a meteorite. You're listening to Ian Wolfe from Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Ursula DeMarco is an Associate Professor in Macquarie University's Department of Physics and Astronomy and an ARC Future Fellow. Ursula is giving the Einstein Lecture at the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney on September 12th on Pocket Astrophysics. I began by asking her, are asteroids a real danger to the Earth? Oh yes, of course they are. Depends on what time scales you want the, this answer for. Over millions of years, yeah, it's a certainty we're going to be hit by something big, right? It has already happened and it will happen again. There are many asteroids that fall on Earth all the time. The smallest ones we call shooting stars. They are asteroids that have the size of a grain of rice. Uh, they're so small that when they enter the atmosphere, they just burn out. And the burning is what we see as a shooting star. Things that are a little bit bigger can be big enough to not be fully destroyed before they hit the surface. And of course, we have examples of that too. Recently, there was an event in Russia with several pieces coming into the atmosphere, burning all the way to the ground and causing uh, broken glass and you know sound waves. And it's quite spectacular and was, of course, caught on multiple cell phone videos and those of course can kill somebody if they hit them over the head <laughs> but uh, they're not going to cause much more damage than the localized bit where they fall. Anything bigger can create a big crater. We have a wonderful example in the Arizona crater for example. The Arizona crater is great because it's in the desert so there's no trees to cover it and so it's very clear when you, when you look at it. It's about a mile across and uh, it's about 50,000 years old, and that's why it's still so uh, beautiful. If you go down the line a little bit longer, maybe another million years, it would be eroded away. That was probably a big rock that made that. If you had been in the proximity, you would have been killed. Um, but if you'd been on the other side of the planet, you probably wouldn't know unless you had a seismograph or some measuring device. Things bigger than that can cause, obviously, bigger destruction. If they fall in the city, they might annihilate that. If they fall in the ocean, they might create a bit of a wave. Um, but if you're, again, on the other side of the planet, you might not know. But, of course, then there are big asteroids, uh, uh, things that are called, um, you know, extinction-level asteroids, such as possibly the one that saw the demise of the dinosaur 66 million years ago. And these ones, it doesn't matter where they hit. Uh, no matter what, uh, so much debris will be kicked out into the atmosphere, the uh, big dusty clouds will block the sun, and of course without the sun we can't live, so plant life will probably die. They'll create a lot of burning all around the globe because material that sort of goes out into almost orbit then comes down on the other side of the planet. And so these ones Potentially, I mean, the, of course, the asteroid that saw the demise of the dinosaurs didn't kill everything, right? Anything with a body weight of approximately 50 kilos or less survived. Exactly why it's not clear. Could they borrow? They didn't eat so much food. Who knows? But these bigger asteroids are rarer, of course. 
whereas the little ones, like the shooting stars, are very, very common. It goes, there's a proportionality to size. We expect this will happen. There's a probability attached to each of these events. We monitor the sky for objects with an orbit that might cross the path of Earth. We do that quite actively. There's a lot of money spent by governments to do this monitoring. But of course, the question is, when we find that something will hit Earth in, I don't know, two years' time, or even 10 years' time for that matter, what are we going to do about it? And that's really not clear. It's not clear that we can shoot it out of the sky. All the energy of the most energetic, powerful bombs we have on Earth is nothing compared to the energy of one of these things coming. So if you hit it with a bomb, it might break it, and then you just have more pieces coming. The only thing that seems sensible and viable is to deviate it by taking a spaceship with a sufficient mass and going with the spaceship next to the asteroid. And the force uh, of attraction that the spaceship would exert on the asteroid might move it a little bit. And that little bit over many, many thousands to hundreds of thousands of kilometers or even millions of kilometers would move it far enough to miss Earth. After all, Earth is not very big, right? So if you know about this early enough, you can just move them a tiny, tiny little bit from their path and then they will miss. But of course, we don't have the technology to, to take a big ship up that will have sufficient mass to deflect the asteroid early enough. But we're not far off, right? We can certainly send probes to comets today. It's just that it's very expensive to send anything up in space. And so what we send tends to be as light as it possibly can. Whereas to have an effect on deflecting an asteroid, it needs to be a bit more massive than that. The other problem is that we tend to not know about these asteroids with a sufficient advance. We have had asteroids that almost hit us. There was something not many years ago that went between us and the moon. Now that doesn't sound very close, but it's very, 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 very close. We, I think, discovered that asteroid no more than about a year before, maybe even less. The other problem is that when you observe something, there's a new asteroid, it's not been cataloged before, you don't know exactly its path, right? So you can find out that the path by taking multiple observations over time. But the path that you can project out in the future has an error bar. So we don't know exactly where it is, right? So you have an idea. So it takes more observations to refine this knowledge and have a better certainty whether it will miss or hit. So there's a lot of complexity to these studies and to these preparations, if you will, that will allow us to uh, avert disaster. I think at the moment, if we discover something, it'll probably be a few months before. And if it's going to hit, there's just nothing we can do. So just saying, just to be cheerful. (laughs) Did the world end in 2012? You know what? I think it did. And right now we are in a parallel universe and we're having this conversation and wondering whether the world ended in 2012. Well, clearly the world did not end in 2012. The predictions were not real predictions. It was this famous Mayan calendar and whatever the interpretation of what it really said. There was something to do with 2012. And of course, the media loved it. Uh, Of course, there was a movie that uh, talked about the end of the world in 2012. And of course, there are several garden varieties, sort of conspiracy theorists who tell us that we don't know about it because the government doesn't want us to tell to know about it. It's yeah, I mean, it's, it's fun to talk about it. 
but I think it's sometimes more fun to talk about how the real end of the world will come about from an asteroid hit or perhaps some big bug, some, some, some big disease that wipes us out or, you know, there's all sorts of choices we can have for a real end of the world. The one that was going to be bringing about 2012 was some kind of alignment of Earth and the center of the galaxy and the sun, and that should have some dramatic consequence for Earth axis and should tilt it and, and all sorts of things would then happen. Well, that is not something that, that, well, it happens regularly, it happens every year, and certainly it's not something that is problematic and it will not be or it hasn't been in 2012. Is there any effect at all from all those things lining up? Apparently not sufficiently for anything of any uh, relevance. The people who believe in horoscopes have us believe that there are all sorts of effects to do with the positions of planets and stars. And, but of course, that's also not, not very relevant. Uh, gravity does exist. It has an effect on many things, including very macroscopic phenomena, such as the tides. But from that to saying that the same pull of gravity has an effect, say, on your brain chemistry, it's, a, it's, it's actually, well, you can do the calculation and realize that the, the influence or the force is really minimal when it comes to the size of a head. And the latest I've heard from people in that, that were quite into 2012 before it didn't happen, uh, is that they're concerned about the Earth's magnetic field flipping. Is that something that we need to be worried about? You know, the Earth magnetic field does flip. Uh, it has some kind of long-term period, but it's not clear how quickly it flips. It seems to be relatively rapidly, but what that actually means is not clear because the geologic record does show that, that over um, the oceanic floor, for example, where you have almost a, a, a book uh, or a, a trace of how the magnetic field was oriented over time, you do indeed see the flips. We'd have to wonder what consequences that will have, not just for the, our compasses pointing the other way, but also because, of course, the magnetic field protects us from the solar wind, and without it, we'd be fried. So um, exactly how that will happen depends on the, the, the exact details of, of the flipping. Astronomy is certainly, uh, in my opinion, what's well, a wonderful field of study. It's great if somebody wants to be in it. but um, the, even more importantly, it is uh, a way to get people interested in science and to learn how to pose questions and learn how to say, I don't know. And it's okay not to know. That's what scientists say all the time. That's why we're here. So astronomy really is a way to teach public, to teach children that uh, how science is done and that it's great to do science. And then they can go on and do something more useful, like become engineers or something or doctors. But it really is a wonderful, uh, perhaps one of the best ways to teach young children and school children how to, to be skeptical and how to investigate, how to question uh, all those things that seem very natural, and yet uh, we tend to teach kids almost the opposite, to, uh, to, to teach them that, you know, do as you're told. And, and, and this is really, uh, in science, it's not what you want to do, right? You want to go beyond what, what you're told. Ursula DeMarco, thank you very much. You're welcome. That was Associate Professor Ursula DeMarco talking about the end 
of the world. You can see Ursula speak at the Einstein Lecture at the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney on the 12th of September. Go to ultimosciencefestival.com to book a seat. A shooting star is not a star is not a star at all. A shooting star is a meteor that's heading for a fall. A shooting star is not a star, why does it shine so bright? The friction as it falls through air produces heat and light. A shooting star or meteor, whichever name you like, the minute it comes down to earth it's called a meteorite. A shooting star is not a star, is not a star at all. A shooting star is not a meteor. A shooting star is a meteor. A shooting star is not a star. Why does it shine so bright? Why does it shine so bright? The friction as it falls through air produces heat and light. A shooting star or meteor, whichever name you like. The minute it comes down to earth, it's called a meteorite. And that was What is a Shooting Star by Tom Glazer and Dottie Evans. And now, on the lighter side, a mood dress. At the Sydney Mini Maker Fair, I spoke with Andrew Stapleton and his eight-year-old daughter, Ashley. Ashley invented a dress that changes colour with her mood, and Andrew built a working model. You can hear the noise of people playing some games at the Maker Fair in the background. I began by asking them, how did the dress come to be invented? It was an invention that Ashley came up with. We asked her about what she would like to invent. And so that was the thing. And she decided I wanted a dress that what was going to do, Dar? Um, that could tell my mood. That could tell your mood. And so then we had to turn the, the concept into reality. So this is what we came up with. So what it does is it uses a NeuroSky. And the NeuroSky gets different values in terms of attention, so that's focus, and also meditation, which is relaxation. And based on that, it changes the colours. So more attention, more focus, it'll be uh, redder more relaxation it'll turn blue it also has other sensors as well so I've got a sensor here that uses a uh, heartbeat monitor and that'll change the, the heartbeat and it has an accelerometer at the back and there's a strip of pixels at the back that changes in your XYZ so that changes as as you move in three dimensions yeah so at the moment it's static so it's pretty much the same at the back <laughs> so you're an engineer no, I have a bit of a varied background. I originally did science and then worked in television and media and worked in interactive TV. Been involved in lots of usability, games, yeah, lots of different areas. And you've been making things before or is this your first project for ages? This is, this is the first project in terms of Maker Fair. I do stuff at home, but yeah. So this was one that we came last year and uh, we didn't have anything to show. So I thought, oh, well, there's a task, there's a goal. <laughs> so how long did it take? Oh, geez, the amount of time. There was a lot of time at the start just trying to get the data and organising all that data out of the uh, NeuroSky, but probably a solid two weeks, I think, in terms of putting everything together. That's really quick. <laughs> you think so? We only had it sewn up yesterday, all the backing and all the little pockets to fit all the, the different uh, mini Arduinos and all that sort of stuff in. But, yeah, it's... It took a while for the things to come across. 
from there were some things that we got from the US, which took a while. But yeah, now apart from that, it was only probably about two weeks. But there were a few uh, late nights near the end of it. <laughs> Did you already have the Neuro Sky? We had the Neuro Sky, and that, if you talk about where that idea came from, it wasn't we didn't realise because Maker Fair was at a different time last year. It was later, I think it was in November. So we didn't realise where we were going to where we were going to end up in terms of the, the time. So there was a lot of time at the start playing around with NeuroSky, trying to see what data we can get out of it, trying to actually analyse that, trying to think about how can I get this information and turn it into something meaningful that relates to a particular emotion like what she originally, what Ashley was originally after. So she was after, you know, happy and sad and things like that. But to try to do that with one, essentially one data point, the baseline, is uh, a little difficult. <laughs> I saw something on TV last week and they had an MRI. So maybe if you had an MRI... That's what you need next. Yeah. <laughs> Portable. Budget a little bit. Portable MRI, yeah. Uh-huh. But, um, yeah, it was a good project and it was really good, I think, for her to see the, you know, the start of where you come from an idea, come up with an invention, and then the process of turning it into a reality and all the compromises, etc., that happen as part of the design process. But it can be done. Has Ashley worn the dress? She hasn't worn the dress. We're going to do it. We're not quite sure when we would do that. It'd have to be um, a bit of a special occasion, I think. Sure. But, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think we can put it on for the fair. But at the moment, it's just trying to get it sort of <laughs> stable enough. So what does Ashley think? This was her idea. Oh, I don't know. You'd have to go and ask her. found something interesting. Oh, hang on. Ash? Yeah, the question. You have a question here, question, darling. Please? Yeah. So, what do you think about your dress? I like it. <laughs> <laughs> what is it that you like about it? Um, the colours. That there is a love heart and the back. Oh, we need the purse too. That's where the batteries go. <laughs> purse. Perfect. That's really the whole dress. It is the dress. So did you enjoy going through that process? Was it fun? Are you going to challenge Dad for something next year? I think it might be your brother's turn next year. (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever consider the mood colour changing materials, you know, the heat changing things that they used to have in mood rings or any of that sort of thing? Yeah, not really for this project. No, not really, but it was interesting when I was looking at the sorts of colour changes uh, to include it in terms of the display, I looked at one of those mood rings and had a look at the sorts of colours and the sorts of things that I had, so I tried to use that as a reference, but um, yeah, it was a bit uh, bit awkward, a bit difficult in terms of, yeah, it's nice the way they split them up, but very difficult compared to what the data you get out, so, but it was... You know, it was good fun. We had the whole family was sort of involved with it. We had other friends that were really good with sewing, you know, yes. being involved with it. Yeah. Have you documented this online anywhere? I've not online, but I have have the video all at home on the iMac, so I should be able to tonight maybe go through and. Um, yeah, originally I was going to bring it today, but didn't get didn't get time to finish it. No, the dress was more of a focus. <laughs> Yeah, I'm really passionate about creative technology, so I think, you know, the, the relationship between 
education, technology and design is something that, that I think is something that needs to be explored more in schools and the kids get sort of, you know, excited about it and to, to go through that process and to see it from a dream into a reality is just great watching what the, you know, the kids' faces light up and stuff, so yeah, it's great. Well, Andrew, thank you very much. Cheers, thank you. That was Andrew and Ashley Stapleton with their mood dress at the Sydney Mini Maker Fair at the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney. You can find out more about the mood dress at themooddress.com. See my video and photos on www.diffusionradio.com. Next up, The Girl by Toy Death. contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network, and 2 Triple H in Hornsby, Karingai, 100.1 FM. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station, and apparently on astronomy.fm. You can now hear Diffusion on Stitcher, radio on demand, and on the go. Download the free app from stitcher.net, and please review Diffusion. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for photos, links and videos that go with this week's show. You support Diffusion by downloading a free book from Audible. Audible will sponsor Diffusion for everyone who signs up to the free 30-day trial and downloads the free book of their choice from audibletrial.com science. Or look for the donate button on www.diffusionradio.com to support the show directly. I'm putting together a crowdfunding campaign for Diffusion on fundscience.org.au. It might take a few weeks before we go live. It's a lot to work out. 
I'd really appreciate hearing from you about the funder rewards you think I should offer and what people and subjects you'd like me to cover if only I had the funding. For example, I'd like to do more panel discussions if I had a second microphone. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more Science Wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. What is energy? Energy is the ability to do work, the ability to cause motion and change. To understand the fundamental facts of energy, you must have a working knowledge of its terminology. From atoms down to x-rays, sing along and learn with me the ABCs and XYZs of energy. What kinds of energy are there? There's nuclear, mechanical, and solar energy, and electrical, and chemical, and radiant, and heat. There's light and there's magnetic, and that's quite enough for me, cause that makes nine different kinds of energy. There are more, of course, but we won't go into that now.